Tonight's reading is from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The throne in heaven. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. He who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for reading, Bill, and let me have my welcome this evening. 1917. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth, and that you've revealed yourself in the scriptures, which you've caused to be written down and preserved for us, so that we may know the truth. Speak to us now through your word, we pray. Help us to focus on you and to grow in faith and confidence, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, has anybody ever been asked the question, what is God like? Have ever anybody been asked? You're a Christian, so you must know God. What is God like? Has anybody ever asked you that? It's a fair question. We go to church. We worship God. We're here today. Uh, so what's God like? So I went online. Ask Google, of course. Google, Google is your friend. I ask Google images for pictures to help us think through what God is like. What do you think is the first image that comes up when you Google God images on, uh, on, on Google? What do you think it is? Nope, it's this one. Yeah, very sadly, it's that one. And it's not an image that any of us would associate remotely with God, I'm afraid. So what is God like? Uh, maybe you think God is someone like this. 
other images. Um, maybe, maybe you don't agree with that one. Maybe that one's a bit too Dumbledore, a bit too whiskery, a bit too uh, uh, flowing robes. How about this one? I can press the button. That one. That's uh, the Sistine Chapel. That's Michelangelo. And there's got still whiskers, but he's, he's got white robes this time, and he's got cherubim all around him, and he's got his finger out just giving breathing life into Adam. Uh, it seems to be that whiskers and flowing robes are, are, are hallmark traits of, uh, of God. Or what about this one? This one's typically Christmassy for us. You know, we, 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 we like to think of Jesus in the manger, a uh, very, very helpful image for us as uh, thinking of God incarnate, born as a child in Bethlehem. But what is God really like? I'm not sure how often you talk to people about God, but I've broached the topic uh, with friends or work colleagues and relatives from time to time. Here are a few of the things that I've heard people say during some of these conversations. They start something like, uh, I like to think of God as. So this is their view of God. And they're saying, I'd like to think of God as. Well, firstly, God is kind. He answers requests and he gives me stuff. Uh, normally, the requests are stretch requests. For example, good results in examinations, easy exam papers, and then has got a need or a desire, and which he or she, they can't fulfill it alone. So God is wheeled in, he's brought into the equation uh, to deliver a stretch request. Have you ever met somebody who thinks of God like that? Okay. Something else which people have said is along the lines of, God, he's a good bloke. He's like me. He's always there for me. And that, that's something that, that I've heard people say. Uh, well, it's friendly, and it can, it, maybe it can come over as a bit condescending. So to liken God to ourselves, imply that he's a good bloke who can be depended upon, it risks perhaps being a bit over-familiar. And one other comment which people sometimes make is that God is available when needed, but otherwise he just lets me get on and stays out of the way. You know, he just lets me crack on. Again, this might be perceived as being a bit chummy and uh, superficially complimentary. You know, he's there when you need him, but not when you don't. Uh, but perhaps a bit presumptuous again. Well, let's come back to our passage and let's take a look at the context before we dive into the detail of what our passage tells us about what God really is like. Recall that we started our, our series in Revelation with the prologue and the introduction, and then there's a magnificent vision of Christ Jesus in all his splendor. He's holding the churches in his right hand and displaying his power and his majesty. Next, we had the letters to the seven churches in chapters two to three, various messages of commendation, rebukes, exhortations to repent, or to persevere with actions in faithful witness to those various cities in Asia Minor. And perhaps we could characterize the seven churches as follows. Ephesus, faithful but frigid. Smyrna, faithful. Pergamum, bad and pretty compromised. Thyatira, worse and also compromised. Sardis, even worse and also compromised. Philadelphia, faithful. Laodicea, rich but repulsive. Remember that spitting out of the Laodicean church. It's lukewarm, it's repulsive. So they're a pretty mixed bag, these churches, aren't they? A lot of work required to address flaws and problems, and some of the weaknesses are serious to the point that they're threatening the continued existence of the church. So maybe at this point you might be a bit concerned for the whole enterprise 
Are the churches going to be okay? Will God's plan to establish his church and to call people to new life in Christ be successful? In this letter, as indicated by the phrase, after this, I looked. So what does this new section hold for us? Let me touch on what I believe are the three main points, the purposes of this passage. Please bear these in mind as we walk through the text. The first purpose is to show that God is sovereign. That is, God rules over heaven and earth, and he's the supreme and governing being. The second purpose is to show that God is transcendent. He is separate from everything else. He is distinct. He's holy. He's set apart. He's unique. He is other. He's not embroiled in creation or with his creatures, but he's holy and separate. He knows all and engages as he chooses, but he exists apart from and is not subject to the limitations of the material universe. The third purpose is to show that God is to be worshipped. As creatures, we've been made by God. We need to give the honor and the glory to him. We need to recognize his nature and worship him appropriately. This is an obligation which falls to all of God's creation, recognizing that he made, he's made us and he sustains us. So let's walk through the passage. I've chosen a heading for the passage overall of Almighty God enthroned. So let's walk through the passage here. First, there's an open door in heaven. John's got the privilege of being able to visit heaven and to see who's there and see what's going on. Then, the voice that John heard at first speaks to him. That's the voice of the risen Lord Jesus. He speaks to John, and he invites him to come up and to show him what is going to take place after this. John then enters heaven, and he sees someone seated on the throne, like Jasper or Carnelian, or in some translations, Jasper and Ruby. The point is that the person seated on the throne is resplendent, brilliant, looking like a glorious and majestic jewel. Also, he's surrounded by a rainbow that shone like an emerald. This picks up elements of Ezekiel's vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. God was surrounded then by brilliant light and also by a rainbow. The rainbow somehow shines like an emerald. I thought rainbows had multicolor, but it shines like an emerald. I'm not quite sure how that works, but uh, maybe the rainbow is an echo of the covenant that God made with Noah. Then there are the other thrones of the uh, 24 elders around God's throne. These serve to underline the sovereignty of God. The presence of elders confirms his, God's ultimate authority. A bit like the state opening of Parliament, Her Majesty the Queen is surrounded by the lords and ladies and members of Parliament. The presence of these 24 elders echoes the number of priests in 1 Chronicles 24 and also the, the Levitical worship leaders in 1 Chronicles 25. So 24 elders around God is a particularly important number. Coincidentally, or maybe intentionally, 24 was also the number of lictors that carried rods in front of a Roman emperor. So if you're looking at the, the Jewish law and then the Roman law, the Roman emperor also had 24 lictors carrying rods in front of him. But this is God. This is not the Roman emperor here. The vision continues, and note that the elders are dressed in white, which is a sign of purity. 
And they're also wearing golden crowns, which is a sign of kingly authority. Next, from the throne, there come flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. This is a clear sign of power. And quakes, thunder, lightning, they all deliver this magnificent, amazing picture of the power and majesty of God. Also, in front of the throne, there are the seven lamps, signifying the sevenfold spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit in God's presence and in all his power. Next up, we have a sea of glass in front of the throne, clear as crystal. Now recall that glass in, in those days would have been a very scarce material. Clear glass would have been particularly rare. The effect of this sea of glass is to underline the color, the majesty, and the authority of him who is seated on the throne, reflecting that lightning and that radiance that we see. Next, the four living creatures. Again, the presence of these four living creatures enhances the status of God on his throne. They match the features of the creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision back in Ezekiel chapter 1. They look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And twice we're told that they are covered with eyes, stressing that they can see all things everywhere. They each have six wings, the king of beasts, the ox, perhaps representing strength and endurance, power, the man, perhaps intelligence and wisdom, and the eagle, speed, accuracy, as well as perhaps protection. For example, when you're carried on eagle's wings, that's mentioned in scripture. It's a theme of other Bible passages. So these creatures have got elements of the features of cherubim and seraphim. They're picking up aspects of the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, as well as Ezekiel. The vision continues with the words of the four living creatures. They use the word holy three times. That emphasizes the separateness, the otherness of God. He's unique. He's pre-existent. He's not created. Holiness also underlines God's moral purity. He's untainted. And he's completely morally pure. God alone is holy, as we understand from Isaiah's vision. He's the Holy One of Israel. God is the Lord God Almighty. His power is ultimate and beyond comparison with anything. He's the Lord. He's the ruler and the king over all things. He's eternally pre-existent. He's imminent right with us now. And his presence is at the heart of the universe. And he will be present eternally for all time. He stands outside of time. The living creatures then give glory, honor, and thanks to God. And they do this continuously. The vision continues. With the elders then falling down and worshiping God. They lay their crowns before God's throne. And then they speak. They praise God by proclaiming his worthiness to receive glory and honor and power. And that's because God created all things and also because by his will they were created and have their being. What a fantastic vision of the proceedings in heaven as the Lord God Almighty himself holds court. 
And we can see the major points from this passage by the various symbols and the descriptions used. The majesty of God in appearance, the proclamation that he is Lord God Almighty, they all underline that God is sovereign. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The holiness of God is stressed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is separate. He's transcendent. He's completely other. All the action in heaven consists of proclaiming who God is and his worthiness. God is to be worshipped by all the creatures, by the elders and the living creatures, by everyone. He's the only one worthy of worship and praise. Well and good, I hear you say, but what has this got to do with us today? So what? What do we need to learn from this majestic vision? Recall that back in the first century, it looked as if God was losing ground. There was opposition to the Christians from many sources, persecution from Rome, from the Jews, among others. But the reality is that God is ruling and that he sustains all things continuously by his power and his might. God alone is the one to be worshipped, despite the spurious claims of others to greatness and worship. So let's wind forward to the 21st century, to Southbourne, and try and draw out what appearances can be deceptive. What looks the case at first glance may not be the spiritual reality what's really going on in heaven and before God's throne. Today, it looks like fewer and fewer people are acknowledging and worshiping God. The church in the West appears to be shrinking, and people are instead going, are following leisure pursuits. They're buying more things. They're amusing themselves rather than acknowledging and worshiping God. Sunday is a major shopping and leisure time. Church is being squeezed out. Also, Christians in the church may seem to be weak. They may seem to be losing the argument. More and more people seem to be thinking that Christianity is old-fashioned, a throwback to days gone by, a legacy of our past, not really something for us here in the 21st century. There are differences of opinion on matters relating to relationships, sexual conduct, Sunday trading, how business should be conducted, behaving in a way that is moral, etc., etc. All these mean that people may perceive that the church is outmoded and on the way out. If any of this sounds familiar from the letters that we've received and to persevere, then that underlines how important it is that we have a correct view of what is really going on in heaven right now. So uh, let's look at some of the other implications of this as they will help us to see reality today. From this passage, we learn that God is on his throne. And not only this, but God created and sustains all things today, even those who oppose him or think he's a spoil sport or perhaps outmoded. In addition, God is the holy and almighty Lord right now. However people behave and whatever they think, God continues to be holy. He continues to have the same power and authority and continues to be king of king and lord of lords. 
Finally, God is the only one who deserves worship. All people everywhere are called today to worship him now. He's patient, and he doesn't desire the death of anyone, but he gives everyone opportunity to repent and to worship him. The situation is serious, as so many are channeling all their energy and efforts to pursue by pleasure and wealth. We need to turn back to the living God and we need to put him in his right and proper place. Okay, so finally, let me just come back to our friend. Remember our friend who, and colleague or perhaps relative who said, oh, I like to think of God as. Let's just come back to him or her and uh, give some comments about God that would suggest answers to their approaches and their ideas in the light of today, today's passage. Uh, remember that our friend was um, uh, interested in God, and he, he or she would give him, uh, be the God who gives things, uh, answers emergency prayer requests for stuff, exam results, stuff. Perhaps we can remind this person that God gives us everything. That's not just the special stuff that we request in a crisis. It's also everything that we take for granted, our health, getting up in the morning, our ability to move around. All those things are gifts from God. Sometimes people can be a bit confused about God. It would be worth reminding this person that God wants the very best for us all at all times. He's not a spoil sport or a miser, but he's ready to bless us eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus. So rather than regarding God as a kind of heavenly father Christmas, maybe we can help this person recalibrate and appreciate the blessings that we receive now and the opportunity of putting their faith and trust in Jesus today. The second friend, remember, was the person who likes to think, he's a good bloke, he's there for me, he's always around for me. Uh, but this person... Maybe we can turn things around a bit and help him or her to see reality a bit more clearly. Rather than thinking about God in terms of himself, how about thinking about God's view of him? It's worth reminding this person that God made us and everything else. And so we need to look at how we relate to God, not so much how he relates to us. It's also worth underlining that we owe everything to God a duty to worship him and as he requires included. That may be uncomfortable, but I think it's important to see God and ourselves in the right places so we're able to appreciate reality. Lastly, we've got the person who's keen to get uh, on with stuff and would just like God to stand aside while he or she... To this person, maybe we can give a warning about being careful what he or she wishes because God may just give them what they desire. If we insist, God will leave us alone, not bother us anymore. And gradually, we're focused more and more on what we desire, and we're less bothered by God. Eventually, he'll give each of us over to what we value. And that sounds great, particularly, but actually, it leads us to worshiping other things. It leads us to idolatry. That means we give up worship of the living God 
and instead we worship creatures or things. We might worship family, we might worship our car, we might worship our home. We worship things rather than the real living God. These things become idols and we give our lives over to them. Ultimately, that leads to encounter with disaster. Firstly, disappointment in the thing we idolize, then death overtakes us, along with all the consequences of that for all who rebel against God and worship idols. That's anything that takes the place of God. Food for thought and hopefully a good discussion with friends and relatives. Shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word.